0: embarrass these guys over here for a moment real quick our friends dj and lynette shoots who have some of you know them if you've been to door faith running door faith orphanage since time immemorial right we were uh together at the anaheim vineyard at primordial before time immemorial uh, but they've been in mexico since then dear friends so bless you guys thanks for being with us so um the uh, boston marathon was last week how many of you knew that Cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of marathons nor a marathon follower. I don't watch it on TV. I noticed it because of a fairly interesting story. If you could put the next slide, there she is. That guy right there, Val Rojeshki, ran the Boston Marathon. She's 75 years old. I know. That's impressive in and of itself. But uh, Val had another goal in mind. This year was the 50th anniversary of the first time she ran the Boston Marathon. Uh, go to the next slide. 1972, along with the, those other seven gals there, I think Val took the picture. She's not in it, but those are her friends or her whatever, running mates. In 72, those eight women ran the Boston Marathon. That is significant because 1972 was the first year that women were allowed to run the Boston Marathon. Um, Which begs the question for me. Why, prior to 1972, were women not allowed to run the Boston Marathon? Uh, Thinking back for a few of us in the room that are a little bit older... In the 60s, you know, um, the civil rights movement was kind of in full swing, and racial equality and justice were big issues on the political landscape. But at that time, gender equality was not really on the map yet. Um, So here we are, 50 years later, us and our friend Val and uh you know gender equality has become a little more in focus today and something that people are thinking about a little bit uh here here's some interesting uh statistics to go along with that in 2020 so just a, you know, a little over a year ago in the United States of America women earned 84% of what men earn, earned for the same job so if same company, same job, same field, everything, all things being equal. Across the board, women would have earned 84 cents on the dollar uh, compared to what men earned. If you extrapolate that out, um, this is what it looks like. So a woman would have to work 42 days more in a given year to make as much as a man. And if you if you take that and, you know, play that out, so a five-day work week, that's two months. So a, a woman would have to work almost two full months more than a man to make the same amount of money. Um, and you can say, well, that's getting better, true. But let me tell you this, that those numbers have been fairly consistent. They have not changed just minisculely uh, over the last 15 years. So, you know, so since the early 2000s, what makes that all the more interesting to me, and, and this is the part that, that really will tweak your head a little bit, is that during that same period of time, in fact, for the last 50 years, since the early 70s, women have outperformed men academically. Higher scores on their SATs, higher scores on their college entrance exam, more advanced placement courses by 25%. Women are t- do 25% better than men academically and make 84% of what make in the same field. So we can say... Uh, There is some visibility to that, and there are different women's movements that have kind of risen up just in even the last few years that have begun to bring some of that into the uh, kind of public eye a little bit more, but those gaps are still there. Uh, For me personally, one of the saddest parts and the most tragic parts about this, is that those discrepancies are carried over very often into the church. Now, uh, in our movement, the Vineyard Movement, women are uh, can hold any position a man holds, can be a senior pastor of a church, uh, our regional overseer here in the Northwest for the last decade has been uh, Rose Sweatman. Some of you know Rose real well. We are currently reorganizing the vineyard nas- nationally, and now we have what's called super regions. So a super region is a combination of, of a few regions, and uh, as it would be, the uh, the super regional leader for our region is also a woman, Brenda Gatlin, out of uh, Minnesota. And so in our movement, those things uh, are not as uh, visible. However, in other denominations uh, around the country, they're very visible. Women are not allowed to hold different leadership positions. And in some cases, um, even more than that I want I've, I've shared this with you before, but I want to read it again today because it's so applicable this is a book called Godland by a gal named Liz Lenz uh, which she's I, I love I just love her I read this book and then I started reading her blog and and she's a little bit uh, you know in your face which I kind of I like that about her but this is this is and this happened at her church. Recently, so in the in the 2010s, within the last 10 years, and I'll just read a little bit of her story to you. Uh, Dave is her husband. Dave and I put everything into that church. We volunteered with the youth on Wednesday nights. I helped with the coffee every Sunday and in the nursery. We went on a trip to Israel and on a mission trip to El Salvador. On that mission trip, everything fell apart. It fell apart because I asked to lead the prayer during devotionals one morning. Stephen... The pastor leading the group had frowned and told me that wasn't my place. I was furious. I had a specific story I wanted to share. One of our local hosts, who was a woman and a pastor, had taken me with her on her visits to the sick people in the village. I'd used my Spanish-English dictionary to talk to a man about how my sisters had been hit by a car just like he had. How one of my sisters also had a hard time walking. It was a small moment of connection that I wanted to tell everyone about, and I wanted to pray for him. But Stephen was upset because I had been with a female pastor, and he didn't think it was my place to be leading devotions in our majority male group. Stephen's approach even angered Dave. When I told Stephen that nothing in the Bible prevented me from talking out loud in a small group, he replied by saying, it's there in the scripture, right here, where you are told to submit. When Dave and I returned from the trip, we met with Pastor Travis and voiced our concerns. We heard that other people had similar concerns with the same pastor, and I said as much. What? Who? Travis said. You know who I said. They told me they told you. No one told me anything, he said. My husband spoke up. We know people have talked to you about how this man treats people. Pastor Travis bowed his head and folded his hands for a moment. When he looked up and met my husband's eyes and said, You're right. I don't know why I lied, and I apologize to you. Apologize to me, I said. You lied to me, not to him. I did apologize to you when I apologized to your husband, Pastor Travis replied, looking not at me, but at Dave. We had been going to that church for five years together, and there I was, not even worthy of an apology. Wow. Okay. So, with that... uh, I have been thinking, you know, every time we do a series or whatever, I kind of pray, what's next? And just thinking lately, and something came to me a couple weeks ago. I thought, I'm going to do a series about uh, women in the Word. And so then I I began to do some research and think about it and look into it a little bit. And some of this stuff kind of came to light, and I, I felt uh, really confirmed that that was what we're supposed to do next. So uh, there you go. Women in the Word. Thanks, Steph, for that beautiful slide. Awesome. Um, Steph does my graphics for me. It makes me look good. Uh, now, again, I, I think even typically when when you ever, there's a kind of a heroes of the faith sort of uh, series predominantly would focus on men. Uh, sometimes one or two women might make it into those lists, uh, but I just thought, what the heck, let's do a whole series uh, of, of women in scripture. There are any number of women, I, I realize, who um, are faithful, they're courageous, uh, they're, they're very powerful, notable in terms of their their commitment to their and, and their, and their impact, really, not just commitment, but their impact on, on their community, their church, their family, uh, even, even their, their culture or their, their country. Uh, so somebody asked me, I was talking about this this week, how long will it be? And I started going through and kind of, you know, just making a list. And the list got pretty long. So I, I'm going to have to taper it down a little bit. I don't know yet, maybe six, eight weeks or so. Uh, but I really feel like this is something, it's one of those things for me, I don't say this all the time, but kind of, I felt like, you know, God saying, yeah, this is, this is the right direction. This is where to go. Um, So we'll start in the Old Testament. I'm going to look at a few of the women in the Old Testament and their impact on on Israel and their early church history, and then we'll we'll shift over into the New Testament. And uh, when we get to the New Testament, we will look at women who made an impact throughout that. Also, I want to look at and kind of focus on a little bit Jesus' interaction with women, because I think something we see is that um, whether it's... uh, you know, the poor or immigrants, or in this case, women, any marginalized group, Jesus' interaction with them was always profound and very, very, uh, really radical by comparison to the cultural standards. Uh, very, very different than cultural standards. Um, so the first person we're going to look at is Sarah. If you would go to the, to the next page, a little background. I thought we'd do a little, a little background on Sarah before we get into it. So first of all, Sarah was the first woman mentioned in Scripture after Eve. So in Genesis, it uh, talks about Sarah. Second point, Sarah was super hot, but she was also getting up there in age. She maintained her beauty well into her uh, later life. Uh, she was involved with her husband, in lying, scheming, and deception. Uh, Interesting point. But that said, she was referenced by the prophet Isaiah. She made the Hebrews hall of faith, and she's referenced in the New Testament by Paul twice, both in Romans and Galatians and Peter. So all that to say that Sarah had quite an impact, not only... On her culture, you know, contemporarily, but historically in scripture. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll, we'll take a look at the life of Sarah. Uh, thanks, Lord, for this beautiful day and for our opportunity to be together to worship you, uh, this morning and to open your word and, and really just dig in and see, uh, what we can learn and grow and glean from you today. Amen. All right. Sarah's story begins at Genesis chapter 11. Um, At that time, her name was Sarai. Uh, She is also notably one of just a handful of people in Scripture who God changed their name uh, because of their circumstances. She and her husband, Abram, uh, were, were two of those people. But her story begins like this. Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. That is the heart and soul of her story. Now, um... Barrenness is a heartbreak for anyone, for any woman and for any couple that's ever experienced that. It's it's uh, possibly one, one of the most difficult and painful things you can go through uh, if you're a, a person or a couple who are, are wanting to have children. Um, today, uh, you know, thank God there are a multitude of options there are there are any number of medical options that can be looked at and evaluated but there there also uh, is you know surrogacy adoption there there are a number of different opportunities for people desiring to have kids um, in sarah 's day obviously not the case um, you were you were sort of just Left in that position, and as we've mentioned before, especially under the law in the Old Testament, there was you were somewhat stigmatized. There was this idea that these different life circumstances, oftentimes, were put upon us by God, and so if something like this happened to you, that probably meant, at least in the eyes of of those around you. Uh, in your, in your culture in general, that, that was God's judgment on you for, in one way or another for something you had done, that you had brought this on. So, so Sarah would have been, uh, desirous of having a child, but also somewhat stigmatized by those around her. Um, in her case in particular, this would be multiplied many times over because of something God had spoken to her husband, which if you go to the next slide there, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, that's, that's powerful. That's a, that's a huge calling, but it's also a problem, because if you're going to be a great nation, you got to start somewhere, right? You, there's got to be, you know, ground zero, point A, you need to have a child. Um, you, you know, I want to interject here uh, for, for just a moment. One of the things that I appreciate about this particular story is that neither Sarah nor Abram were perfect people. Uh, they were flawed, and and they did, frankly, some sketchy stuff. Okay, let's just put it that way. Uh, but that said, overall, they they continued to pursue the call of God, and I just think that's a a, a word for us. You know, let's let's just, you know, put the cards on the table. None of us here are perfect either. Probably we've all done some sketchy stuff. We've all made mistakes. And yet th- there is the reality that in the midst of the moment and what happens along the way, we can continue to press into God, continue to pursue God, even uh, in the midst of errors and mistakes, we can push forward in that. Um, I think that should be an encouragement to us. God is not looking for per- per- for perfection he 's looking for people that will um, press into him that will just continue to pursue Him even when things don 't go well and even when we mess up on our own. so Sarah and Abraham begin their journey uh, along the way they run into some problems there's a, uh, there 's there's, there, there's a lot of obstacles one, one of those obstacles is a famine. Uh, And the famine causes them to have to redirect, and they end up in Egypt. And it's in Egypt where we're first told that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And we're told that because in this case, um, that caused her husband to be concerned. And frankly, he kind of threw her under the bus to save his own skin. Okay? He said, lie, and tell them you're my sister. Because if you tell them you're my husband, they might... Kill me so they can get you, but if you tell them i 'm your brother, they won 't kill me, so really, he threw her under the bus. they both lied um, following that uh, there 's a lot of other and we won 't go into it would just take too much time to go into the whole story, but there 's a lot of other uh, stuff happens. God does bless them, and he preserves them and 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 continues to move them towards uh the the you know the vision and and the purpose that he given them but in the midst of all of that the, the the promise of god goes unfulfilled there's no child and and so you know as 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 we might say today uh not only is there no child but the old biological time clock is ticking uh the you know the years are passing by and that window of opportunity to have a child is passing so eventually uh, they are at the age uh, Sarah is seventy six years old Abram is eighty six years old uh, and they are somewhat desperate at this point and and beginning to feel as though uh, they need to to do something to kind of take god 's purpose into their own hands um, so Sarah instructs Abram to have a child with with her maid her servant um, so that the purpose of God would be fulfilled. That was not a good idea. As you can imagine, something along the lines, this sort of, this sort of uh, you know, ended up looking like a, an episode of Real Housewives of Canaan um, real quick. Things just kinda went downhill. It was a lot of you know, sniping and, and, and just it just wasn't pretty. Um, but time goes on another you know series of years years passes by um so uh we get to the point where uh abram is now 99 years old god speaks and renews his promise to him um and it's at this point go ahead we'll look at the verse where they he changes their names god Said to Abraham, "As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah; her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her, as she will be the mother of nations; king of peoples will come from her." So now there's been uh, a, a very, very long period of time. I think way past the time in which most of us, may all of us, probably would have given up. I mean, it's like. You know what's going on here, but God renews His promise, and this is where the, the whole idea of Sarah laughing comes from. Sarah laughed, but for, but to be you know, if you read the text, they both laughed at this, uh, which is it's bad form, really. It's a little disrespectful. God speaks, and you kind of laugh in God's face, right? Not necessarily the response, and yet if you put yourself in their shoes, you, you've got to think, okay, look, that ship sailed. God, you spoke, it didn't happen. Okay, we're, you know, this is where we are today. Um, They were of the impression at this point that this just wasn't going to happen. And then this happens. I love this little exchange. Go to the next one. (laughs) The the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I, I, I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Two things I love about that passage. One is at the end it says, but he said, yes, you did laugh. But it doesn't say who said that. Is that Abraham or God? Which one of them is calling her out? I'm not sure. You, it's, uh, it's open to interpretation. The other thing I love about that is this. they've waited so long. God has spoken, said, I'm going to make this thing happen. I'll come through. It's going to happen. And then he says, I'll be back next year. Just one more year. Okay. So I'm just thinking, seriously, really? Uh, But let me just say this. Don't give up. Don't give up. God might speak something into your heart. And I know for me, when I've received those kinds of things, you think, you know, I, I think, okay, now this is going to happen, right? This is, this is going to come to pass. And then a little time goes by, okay, God, that we're ready. We're waiting, make it happen. But God's timeline is so different than ours. And I, I, I looked at, I read that verse this week and I just thought, man, that's, that's a little tough. You know, they've waited so long. And then God says, I'll be back next year. I'm like, Come on. But God's timing is different than our timing. So just hang in there. God speaks something to you. So at this point, more drama, more shenanigans. And, and finally now, Sarah is 90. Abram is 100. And this happens. The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. At the, I love it, at the very time God had promised him. Um, so, so if you read the rest of the, of the uh, section in Genesis that talks about Sarah's life, it tells us that she died at 127 years old. And so she, she would have had, uh, at that point, I think, if I, my math is correct, if I, it's hard to follow the timeline, but I think 37 years with her son, to raise her son. Uh, So she had a season of time to be with him and to live in the promise of God. So what can we glean from all of this? What can we learn from Sarah's story? Sarah is Called by, by God, the reference says the mother of nations. Abraham is the father of faith. She's the mother of faith. She's venerated by multiple New Testament authors. Really lifted up as an example to us. And yet, I mean, when you read the story, you look. She's a bit of a hot mess. I mean, she she really kind of, like we said earlier, didn't play by all the rules. Um. But but here's the thing in the midst of all that she exhibited what is in in my estimation unparalleled perseverance if if you were to say what does perseverance look like i would say that's what it looks like she just kept keeping on she just kept going when, when everything, anything, all of the above said no, she's kept going. She stayed faithful to her husband. She stayed faithful to God. And she stayed faithful to the promise that God had made long past the expiration date. Way way after it looked like God's not going to come through, she continued to press in. And I think that is a quality that we can look at and say, hey, that speaks to me. Um, Another thing that I appreciate about Sarah is that uh, she had a certain humility about her. She did not take herself too seriously. I don't know if you noticed that, but there were a couple of different occasions where uh, Sarah laughed, where where she kind of said, well, okay, whatever, here we go. Uh, And and one of those, though, uh, another one happened at the end. Go one more verse. Uh, Sarah said, God, this is, this is late in life. God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. That should be on her tombstone. That that should be a testimony. God, God brought joy to my heart, laughter to my heart. And now everyone can share in that. And I, I think that's a profound thing for us. So there's perseverance. Uh, there's humility there's patience, there's trust in God, and, and maybe more than anything else, there's a faith. There's a faith as as I as I said earlier, Sarah is listed, she's one of two women listed in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Um, and she held on. She held on through through difficult times, through trials, through circumstances. All of that. Hebrews tells us at the beginning of that chapter, faith is confidence in what we hope for. So there's a hope out there. We have confidence in that. And it's assurance. It's believing in what we do not see. And that really is the story of Sarah's life. Uh, It it was a story of faith. Um, So she really exemplifies, I think, faith for us. And I, I think really speaks to us about uh, holding on to the promises of God and, and living out faith in our own lives. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Cascade Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org.